Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Unreal Podcast. I'm Ishtahar and with me is Vegas Z. And today we're talking fantasy football. Players to stay away from. Players to go after. Let's get right into it. Draft season is finally upon us. And just by looking at the board, I already see there are so many players that are going way too high. They should not be there. Let's just start. Let's go right into it. Okay. What is Jonathan Taylor doing around the 10 to 14 pick range right now on pro football focus they have him ranked at number eight personally i wouldn't touch him he he doesn't have a quarterback right now they have three running backs on that team there's just way too many guys to feed in that offense for me to like i mean jonathan taylor when you look at it okay yeah he had a solid season last year but you got naeem hines there you got a healthy marlon mack Jordan Wilkins is even playing, too. I mean, there's too many guys. He's going way too high. I don't know why he's number eight. I wouldn't even take Jonathan Taylor over a guy like Najee Harris who you could get maybe at the end of the next round. Well, the thing is, you know Najee Harris is going to be the starter there. There's there's not going to be other guys around him. He's going to be getting fed a bulk of the load. Um, and you know what that offensive line can do in Pittsburgh. They breed great running backs. The, the, the system always is in favor of the running backs. Their guys always do well. I know James Conner got hurt last year. Uh, and uh, Benny Snell, I believe, he, he was hurt, banged up last year. They, they had some injuries back there. But usually you could always count on a Pittsburgh Steelers running back, especially a guy that they took so early in the draft. You know he's going to get his touches and he's going to do well compared to a guy like Jonathan Taylor who is going to be fighting for the ball realistically. If he has a bad game, he fumbles once or twice, he, he struggles well, Marlon Mack's right behind him. Naheem Hines is right behind him. And they have talent. It's not like it was just the other day when Marlon Mack was balling out with the Colts. Mm-hmm. Naheem Hines is catching a lot of balls out of the backfield there. Jonathan Taylor is not going to be running the show by himself. There's going to be a lot of players getting a lot of touches there, and I would completely stay away from the whole backfield. And they've had some injuries to that offensive line. It's just the Colts' offense is not something I'm investing in. Another player that really sticks out to me is a guy like C.D. Lamb, okay? C.D. Lamb right now, you're seeing him go in the third round early. Over Amari Cooper. I mean, and not even Amari Cooper. It's just I'll I'll get to that at one point. But when C.D. Lamb is going before guys like Keenan Allen and guys like Julio Jones, um, I just personally don't see it. I get he's talented, but there's so many mouths to feed in that Cowboys offense that I'd stay away from all of them. I personally would rather have Cooper Cup over a CeeDee Lamb. Cooper Cup is going to play with Matthew Stafford, his most talented quarterback he's played with. He's going to get a lot of targets. CeeDee Lamb, you got Amari Cooper there, you got Michael Gallup there, you got Zeke's going to get a lot of touches, you got all these guys, it's a lot of mouths to feed. I'm staying away from him because he's just going too early in my opinion. I mean, he's going over Julio Jones. Julio Jones got A.J. Brown to compete with. C.D. Lamb got Amari Cooper and Gallup. I'll take Julio Jones. That's it. I might have to disagree with you on that. That offense is probably going to be down almost all of the time because their defense is just going to be terrible. That offense can have 3,000-yard receivers, 
and Cooper, him, and Michael Gallup. There's a great chance that Cooper gets hurt. He's gotten hurt a lot throughout his career. Or somebody else gets hurt. He's going to see a lot of targets. He could possibly be the best receiver there. Or potential-wise, he's going to be the best receiver there. He just needs time. With Dak, they're going to be throwing the ball all of the time. They're seeing something that we don't see right now in training camp. And I truly believe that, say Cooper gets hurt, this guy's a top 10 receiver. Because Prescott, when he likes a receiver, he will force feed him. Prescott could throw for 5,000 yards this year. Yeah, I but, wouldn't be surprised. But you got to realize Cooper is not coming into the season hurt. Cooper is fully healthy right now. And it's just, I would rather have a guy like Keenan Allen who's been money for the last four or five years. What's what's money to you? What's money to you? I mean, money to me is what he was last year, which was basically a thousand yards, a hundred catches, and eight touchdowns. I mean, that's as money as it can be. He's very consistent, and that is what you need as a wide receiver. To me, that's not money. That's not money. To me, that's solid. But my starting receivers, and even him, like his his year before, what twelve hundred yards, six touchdowns. He's, that's what he consistently is, 1,200 yards and six touchdowns. And he gets three touchdowns in one of those games. So throughout the year, he's getting catches. He's getting yards. I want guys that are going to get touchdowns. In the NFC East, there is no, besides the Redskins, the Redskins have a good defense. The other defenses suck, okay? And you know for sure that the Cowboys are going to be running up the points. C.D. Lamb it will probably be better than him. I could see C.D. Lamb doing Going for 1,100 and fucking eight touchdowns, 1,208. The thing is right now, when it comes down to it, I like when I'm picking guys is for a player to be secure. Okay, so right now, CeeDee Lamb, one game, you're right. He might snap. He might get you 20, 25 points. Okay, but I know every fucking week, Keenan Allen is good for 10 points. Yeah. Minimum. Okay, 10 Minimum. points isn't winning you championships, buddy. It's going to get you to the playoffs. When C.D. Lamb drops two points, has two catches for 20 yards, because that's going to happen a lot, and it happened last year, Keenan Allen is money. And if I'm drafting someone in the second or third round, where C.D. Lamb right now is going in the third round, I want a guy that's going to be money. Guaranteed 10 points plus a week. That's it. You want a guy in the third and fourth round, to me, who's going to be good, but you know he could go off for 30 points. Julio Jones, probably not that guy. Keenan Allen is not really that guy. CeeDee Lamb is a guy you can look at and say, wow, he could get 25 points for me in a game. He could go off for 100 yards and three touchdowns. That, Bro, the, the NFC East, there's the defenses aren't that good. They're going to be down all the time because their defense sucks. The ball will be aired out. I am invested fully into the Cowboys offense. Dak Prescott... I'm all in on the receivers. I'm all in on Zeke. I'm all in on their offensive line is back. The Cowboys are a team to take in fantasy. Honestly, what worries me about the Cowboys is one, just not even just a mouse to feed, but Dak is injured right now. Okay. It's not like he's been playing. He's missed the whole season basically. Mm. And now he hasn't played any preseason games. He's going to be coming into week one, ice cold. Ice cold beyond ice cold, okay? So, it's not like he's practicing either. They're holding him out of all these practices. We see firsthand on hard knocks, okay? 
Dak is not playing. He's not getting his reps. He's going to come into the season cold. And guess what? The Cowboys are going to be a team I'm betting against every single week to start the season because they're going to have zero communication. There's going to be zero chemistry. And this whole team is going to look like shit for the first four or five weeks, in my opinion. I think you're over-exaggerating completely. This always happens starting quarterbacks. Don't play in the preseason. Don't they play, don't, but practice. They don't, he doesn't have to practice. He knows all these guys. He's played with them before. It's the same guys. Nothing's changed on offense. He's coming off a very, very serious injury, and he's had zero time to practice with his teammates. That, to me, is worrisome. That's all I'm saying. Invest in the Cowboys. They're going to be fucking good. Now, moving on. Who is a player you look at right now and you say, what the hell is this guy doing this high? This hurts me so fucking much to say because I love this guy so much. But Saquon Barkley, I cannot justify taking Saquon Barkley at nine right now. He's coming off the ACL. You don't know when he's going to play. And before he got hurt last year, he did not look good. The year before, he was hurt for most of the year. Before that, he didn't look that good. I don't know what it is right now with Saquon. Saquon is a freak, okay? His rookie year, I looked at him. I'm like, this is the next Adrian Peterson, except he could catch. But now I'm looking, and <sighs> Saquon Barkley won me my first fantasy championship. I love the guy. I, 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 this hurts to fucking say it. But you can't justify taking him in the think, first round. I think personally your, your main point was that we don't even know when the guy's going to play. Okay, so why would you take a guy in the first round where, okay, let's say he just misses two weeks. Let's say, best case scenario, he probably misses a week or two, right? Okay, Okay. and then you got a bye week too. That's already three weeks of you not having Saquon. And that's assuming that for the rest of the weeks that he's playing, he's fully healthy and good to go, which he's never been fully healthy and good to go. I'm just not taking him. I'd rather have a Nick Chubb. I'd rather have Zeke. I'd rather have, and I'm not even that high on Zeke, but I'd rather have him over Saquon. I'd rather have guys in the first round that I know are going to 100% produce. I'm not going to get cute in the first round drafting a Saquon Barkley, and then next thing you know, he doesn't come back till week three, week four, and then, oh, he has an injury, then, oh, a bye week, and next thing you know, you're, you're without Saquon for the first half of the season, okay? He's going to miss at least three games this year, 100%, including a bye week, maybe four. I'm not losing my fantasy year off a guy in the first round when I could just go grab someone else and be secured with a Nick Chubb, Alvin Kamara, anyone like that. The other thing that worries me about the guy is that he's never played really well with Danny Dimes. Think about it. The, his best year was his rookie year by far, right? Okay. Yeah. Who was the quarterback his rookie year? Eli. Since Danny Dimes has come in... Where it, did Danny Dimes from? Uh, that's they, his nickname. Okay, well, he... He's not dimes, so let's... Listen, let's... respect the New Yorkers out here. They call him Danny Dimes. Yeah, Danny Dimes. He yeah. sucks. Don't get me wrong. I'm sorry, New Yorkers. He does suck. But, like, he hasn't played well with the kid. Like, they, there's something there that that doesn't really work. I don't know what it is. But, I don't know, man. Saquon's just the guy I'm staying away from. All right, who's your next guy that you're staying away from? Well... Mine's not exactly a guy. My next position I'm staying away from is a quarterback position. Okay, let me just say that. There are so many good quarterbacks, fantasy-wise, this year, where 
if if you take a Patrick Mahomes in the first or second round, you're just not smart. You're really not. You got Josh Allen. You got Lamar Jackson. You got Mahomes. You got Russell Wilson. You got Kyler Murray, Ryan Tannehill, Herbert, Rodgers. That's probably like 10 right there, okay? So many good quarterbacks this year where nobody should be taking a quarterback within the first four or five rounds, in my opinion. Not a single quarterback. Nobody is justifiably that good like how Mahomes was a couple years ago where you say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take a quarterback this early. I'm not touching nobody till round 10. And guess what? You guys can all decide. I'll take a Dak Prescott round 10. I'll take a Ryan Tannehill round 10. I'll take anybody. It doesn't matter. I don't think the quarterback position has ever been this juicy, to say the least. You do look at it, and there's so many guys that can just do so many things so well. Mahomes, we all know what Patrick Mahomes is. Allen showed us what he is last year. Murray is coming into an offense where he has even more veteran wide receivers this year. And he's coming into another year into the NFL. Like you know, you know what he's going to do. Dual threat quarterback. He's gonna be good. Prescott has shown you what he can do. Lamar Jackson, you know what he can do. Russell Wilson, Rodgers, you don't have to speak on these guys' behalf. Justin Herbert is a dog. Ryan Tannehill has Julio Jones now added to that offense. And Ryan Tannehill goes under the radar and drops 25 to 30 points. Like, every week, like it's nothing. his rushing aspect, too. He'd be running the ball a lot. He could do a lot of things. That's nine quarterbacks right there. Jalen Hurts is a sleeper. Jalen Hurts is a sleeper. Stafford's in a good offense. Joe Burrow could snap. Brady could snap. I mean, you just... Justin Fields, who knows? who He could be the next guy. Big Ben's going to air the ball out a bunch. I mean... You don't know this year with quarterback. And I was the type of guy that took... Mahomes in the second round, his second year. Yeah, but that was when there was a gap. Yeah, there was a gap. There was a big gap. There's no gap this year. There's no gap at all. This year, you can take a quarterback any round, really. Honestly, if it came down to it and there's like a Mahomes available in the fourth round or I'm, I'm choosing between Mahomes and I'm choosing between a nice running back two or a nice wide receiver two, I'm not gonna take Mahomes. I'm just not gonna do it. I know down the line I have money players no matter what. I'd rather secure myself at other positions than take a Patrick Mahomes that early. Because that's it. It's just the gap is no longer there. Okay, let's look at it right now. Mahomes or DK Metcalf? DK Metcalf all day. AJ Brown. AJ Brown. Austin Eckler. Austin Eckler. Darren Waller. Darren Waller. Justin Jefferson. I'll take Jefferson. Najee Harris. I'll take Harris. George Kittle. All these guys, you can name them all down the list. Allen Robinson, Mike Evans, C.D. Lamb, Montgomery, Chris Carson, Keenan Allen. All these guys, I want over Mahomes because the gap is non-existent. Absolutely non-existent. Okay. Can we talk about guys that we like now? Yeah, go ahead. A guy that I love, currently ranked number 28, is scary. Terry McLaurin. How all these receivers are going ahead of him, I don't know. He's the type of guy that makes me justify not taking a receiver in the first round. That's my rule, by the way. You go running backs all day in the first round. You do not touch wide receivers because you never know who's going to be number one. 
Who's Scary Terry's quarterback this year? Ryan Fitzpatrick. What does Ryan Fitzpatrick do with receivers that are good? He feeds them the ball no matter what. We can look back as far as you want when he's with when he was with Tampa, Mike Evans fed him the ball. He went to Miami. Devontae Parker was on his way out of the league. He got Devontae Parker a four year, forty million contract. He force fed him the ball. He goes to Washington right now. He has Terry McLaurin. Terry McLaurin will be a top three fantasy receiver, no doubt in my mind, as long as Fitzpatrick is the quarterback because Fitzpatrick will do everything he can to get that man the ball. I disagree. I do not think he's going to be as good as you say he is. I'm sure he'll be a solid wide receiver. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not taking Scary Terry over a guy like Keenan Allen who's proven year in and year out he's absolutely money. I'm not taking him over Justin Jefferson. I'm not taking him over a lot of these guys. I mean, Scary Terry, yeah, he's good, but he's not that good. In his first two years, the guy has 2,000 yards and 11 touchdowns. 180 fantasy points last year, 162 the year before. Who was his quarterback the first two years? His first year, who was his quarterback? Couldn't tell you. You couldn't tell me. Last year, who was his quarterback? Multiple quarterbacks, I think. Like 12 guys. Yeah. He still put up 1,100 yards. This guy is unreal. The fifth-round product that got, I don't know what college he went to. He's a baller. You're going to put a quarterback that could sling the ball, that's going to get him the ball. You draft Terry McLaurin this year. Before you draft guys like George Kittle. Before you draft guys like Justin Jefferson, A.J. Brown, maybe not D.K. I say, honestly, you go Adams, Hill, Hopkins, then McLaurin. Who's your guy? Now, for me, you look at the wide receiver position. You just name so many guys. There's so many players that you could draft. To me, if I have a second-round pick, I'm not taking uh, Terry McLaurin a DK Metcalf, a DeAndre Hopkins, a Devontae Adams, a Tariq Hill, any of those guys. I'm taking Travis Kelsey all day, and I've done it the last two years. The tight end gap is still there. It's not the quarterback gap anymore that just disappeared. When you draft a guy like Travis Kelsey, he's essentially a wide receiver one that you could start at the tight end position. The advantages of having that is huge. I'd rather have a Travis Kelsey, and then guess what? I could go the 7th, 8th round. I could grab any random wide receiver that could snap any given day. But if you were to take a stud wide receiver in the second round, you can't go grab that tight end in round 7 or 8 that's going to snap. So having a guy like Travis Kelsey, and then guess what? Later on in the draft, you grab a guy like, let's say, Cortland Sutton, Juju Smith-Schuster, Robbie Anderson, Brandon Cooks, all these guys late. I would rather have a Kelsey and a Juju than taking a DK Metcalf and a terrible tight end late in the draft. Travis Kelsey's advantage is so big and people overlook it at times. And it's so huge to have that tight end that early. For the last few years, it's been one guy at the tight end position. And it has been him. The drop-off is real. Mark Andrews has shown some promise the last few years. George Kittle, the same thing, has shown promise throughout the last few years. It's the biggest thing. It's health. Kelsey stays healthy. 
Kelsey goes for thirteen hundred and ten. It seems like like it's nothing. He does it. The problem is when it comes to like looking at him, is people are like, uh, I'll just get a tight end late and hopefully I get lucky. Tight ends average like six to seven points a game. This guy averages over twelve. The gap between that and a wide receiver you could take in the second round, like a Stefan Diggs, compared to like an Adam Thielen, that gap is a lot closer com- when you, uh, compared to a Travis Kelsey and a Robert Tunyon. One hundred percent. You have like to routine. if you have a chance to take Kelsey after all the running backs you like are gone, you take Kelsey. Wide receivers, you can always find them. Cortland Sutton is a great young talent who got derailed by injuries. You could see him having a great year. Okay. Noah Fant, by the way, just popped in my head. Is a tight end to watch out for. Uh, but that just popped in my head. That was a random thought. But like I said, it's Kelsey, then it's everyone else. Compared to the receiver group, where it's like everybody's so much closer together. And the thing is, with the departure of Sammy Watkins, that just opens up more targets for Travis Kelsey. Yeah. Travis Kelsey, no matter what, is looking at 8 to 10 targets a game, Easy. and he's going to have a touchdown, I think, a lot of the time. I mean, his touchdowns last year regressed, but I think we're going to see a lot more touchdowns this year from him. They're going to look for him in the red zone. I like Kelsey big this year, and I'll take him above every wide receiver besides Devontae Adams. Now, the last guy I don't like in his current draft position is Calvin Ridley. Calvin Ridley has been the beneficiary of being next to Julio Jones his whole career. When a defense has to look and see Julio Jones on the other side, they're going to concentrate on Julio. They're going to send the safety help on that side. Calvin Ridley has been able to go one-on-one his whole career because of that. Now, he can't do that. He's the main guy. Besides that, the receiving core, they got Kyle Pitts. You don't know what you're going to have with them. The running back situation is eh. The quarterback situation is eh. The offensive line is eh. What makes me confident or makes anyone confident to take Calvin Ridley at 13? Please try to change my mind. Okay. I think you're completely wrong. Okay. Calvin Ridley had 90 catches and 1,300 yards, almost 1,400 yards. Why? Okay. Why? Because he's the fucking man. No, because Julio Jones is on the other side of him. And watch A.J. Brown have the same rewards this year. No, no. Now that Calvin Ridley is the number one option in Atlanta, he is going to be an absolute monster. And it's not like he's just suddenly came out of nowhere. Last year, he had literally 1,374 receiving yards. Okay? 90 catches. He finished as one of the best wide receivers in the league. His route running is beautiful. I don't know if you've just not watched football. You want to act like he's not all that. His route running is fucking beautiful. You're not listening to what I'm saying. Okay, it doesn't matter. Devontae Adams last year was the same exact thing. He was the only guy there. Guess what? Matt Ryan, you know what he's going to see? He's going to see Calvin Ridley. He's going to see, wow, that guy I trust. He's going to force feed the fuck out. You sound so stupid. No, I don't sound You sound so fucked. I sound stupid. Because you're comparing Matt Ryan... To Aaron Rodgers, okay? You're comparing that offense to another one. Devontae Adams to Calvin Ridley. Are you, like, on coke? Calvin Ridley is a legit 
wide receiver threat that has crisp route running. He didn't just have 90 Listen, catches and almost 1,400 yards. I'm not him. saying Kelvin okay. Ridley's not a good receiver, okay, so, but he's been benefiting off the fact that Julio Jones is right next to okay, him. So you're telling me you would rather have Metcalf, A.J. Brown, Hopkins, all those guys over Kelvin Ridley? 110 million gajillion percent. Yes. You're wrong. You're 100% wrong. Calvin Ridley is a guy that's going to be locked for an unlimited amount of targets, okay? The Falcons' defense isn't all that exactly. The Falcons are always down a lot. They're going to be gunslinging. Matt Ryan trusts him. He's going to have a lot of catches. He's going to have a lot of touchdowns. He's going to be big this year. What's the difference between Ridley and the three guys, Metcalf, A.J. Brown, and DeAndre Hopkins? What's the biggest difference between them three? The biggest difference is... Metcalf has Tyler Lockett across from him. A.J. Brown has Julio Jones across from him. You know who Calvin Ridley has across from him? Absolutely nobody. A.K.A. he's going to get every single target on that offense. You sound so stupid right now, okay? No, I do not. A.J. Brown just got, uh, what you call it? He just got Julio Jones next to him, right? Okay. Now he's going to benefit the same way Calvin Ridley did. No. Okay? Calvin Ridley, wait, wait, wait. DeAndre Hopkins never had anybody with him in Houston, okay? He was shooting in the gym by himself. No, he had Will Fuller. Will Fuller was a solid. For the last few... Oh, okay. Before that, he had Brock Osweiler throwing it to him, and nobody else was around him. Okay. Okay. Metcalf, sure, you could say he has Lockett. Besides that, the rest of the offense is like nobody's. Okay. Okay. The difference between those three and Kelvin Ridley is all those three guys were the number one receiver on their team always. They were always the guy, and you always knew that you could count on them no matter what. Can you say the same thing about Kelvin Ridley? Was Kelvin Ridley ever the number one wide receiver on the Atlanta Falcons? Well, he had Julio Jones with him, so it's obvious that he couldn't be. But guess what? His numbers were wide receiver one numbers, and they could be number one overall wide receiver numbers this year, especially in PPR leagues, because he's going to be peppered with targets every single week when Atlanta's down 20 at half. Guess what? They're going to go shotgun. Everybody get the fuck out of the way. Kevin Ridley run, run around. Hey, and out. Boom. 10 yards. Slam. Do you, do you remember, like, when you were a little kid, sometimes you used to play, like, basketball? And it used to be the two bigger kids. It used to be the two bigger kids against, like, the three younger kids, right? And the three younger kids, what would they do? They double-team the guy that they thought was better, a.k.a. Julio Jones. And then it'd just be one-on-one. -on -one, the other big kid against, the, like, the junior high kid. And the other big kid... Would score all day, right? That's exactly what happened with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley. And that's exactly what's going to happen for A.J. Brown this year. He's going to reap the freaking rewards. You can look up the Atlanta depth chart. You know what you're going to see? A bunch of fucking cocks. They all fucking suck. How about that? Who are you going to see? Tell me who they got. Russell Gage fucking sucks. Zacchaeus sucks. Kyle Pitts, you have no clue what you're getting with him. Kyle Pitts is going to be the real deal. He could be. You don't know that. He's a rookie, okay? Mike Davis has bounced around the league like a fucking whore. Who else are you going to fucking get? Tell me, Z. Who? Who? Calvin Ridley ain't going to do shit this year. Yeah. He's going to be. He's going to be. my point. You're proving my point. There's nobody there but Calvin Ridley. Exactly. So defenses are going to triple team him. They're not going to triple team him. Really? Devontae Adams is the only guy. Why didn't they triple team him? Because they have a great run game, and Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history, okay. so he can fucking pass it to Doesn't anybody. Matter. Doesn't matter. If you put me in the Green Bay offense, I'm going to look good. Okay. Calvin Ridley <laughs> is the only guy there, and he's going to get a lot of targets, like I said. You're going to be so wrong on this, and guess what? Week one, week two, week three, when he's snapping, I'm just going to laugh at you every week and come back to this moment where you say Calvin Ridley is nothing because he is going to be huge. Calvin Ridley will put up round, round four receiver numbers. Hell no. Round Hell four no. receiver numbers. 
That's what he's going to do. He's going to put up 1,100 yards and six touchdowns, which is good. He's a good receiver, but he does not deserve to go over Metcalf, Hopkins, or A.J. Brown. I don't care what anyone says. It's actually unbelievable how wrong you are, and once the regular season starts, you're going to see that Calvin Ridley is just going to be a target machine. He's going to be a monster, and A.J. Brown, guess what? He's going to have Julio side-by-side with him. He's not going to get all those targets. Calvin Ridley is a lot. The over. Shut your mouth. Calvin Ridley is going to be a top five wide receiver. We'll see you guys. I already know you're going to edit that to make it look like you actually made me shut your mouth. mouth. (laughs) We'll see you guys on the next episode of Unreal with Ishtar and Vegas Z. Goodbye. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Welcome to the Static Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony T., and today we're talking pharmaceutical hitmen. one of the static podcast we're talking pharmaceutical hitmen today what's going on in the media we have the noise about afghanistan still uh the whole withdrawal situation what's going on there everybody's up in the uproar we have the fda approves the pfizer vaccine so let's get into it uh in the 70s there was a gentleman called John Perkins, and he was what they called an economic hitman. Uh, I recently read his book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which was very interesting. So to uh, describe an economic hitman, basically, uh, these are people who worked for very powerful people in the United States, and they went around underdeveloped countries and basically made them an offer they can't refuse. Put it nicely. So this man, John Perkins, who wrote this book, he made his ways in the 70s all through Panama, Ecuador, uh, Saudi Arabia, Colombia even. He was in all these countries. And if you remember, for some reason in all these countries in the 70s, there was always some bad dictator or some tyrant running these countries. Well, that may have been true and may have not been true and i'm leaning toward the may have not been true that all these people were really bad and another thing that all these countries had in common were they had a large reserve of natural resources aka oil so mr perkins would make his way down to one of these countries and he was uh his title was economic forecaster and he would go to this underdeveloped country and say hey we're planning to develop this country and there will be so and so much growth and we need so and so much infrastructure, i.e. electric, roads, uh, you name it. And depending on the leadership there, they would agree or disagree. And this would make them either 
bad people or good people. If they agreed, they would be great. They're doing great. They're taking the helping the poor, underdeveloped countries come into the new age and develop and make their country uh, not an underdeveloped country. And of course, uh, nobody does this out of their goodness of their heart. So is there, there's a very big price tag attached to this development project. And the development project is conveniently carried out by American contracting companies. And there's all, there was only a several. There was Bechtel, there was Halliburton, there was Stone and Webster, and I think maybe one or two more. But these are big engineering and construction firms that would get all these contracts directly, and they would go in and do all this development. Now, of course, you would say, well, if these are poor, underdeveloped countries, where are they getting all this money to perform this development? Well, here steps in the United States government through their program of USAID, and they give these countries these absurd loans where they know these countries will not be able to pay back. And what happens is basically the country goes into default. They're in the pocket of the American government. And now, hey, well, you have all this oil. And you know what? We'll take this oil. But you know, And usually they never end up paying the debt, even no matter how much oil this country gives the United States. So what's the big deal if we ha- if these countries have to give the United States some uh, oil? Well, that is not a big deal. But when these companies come to extract the oil, now you got to think these these poor countries are not extract. Some of them may be extracting a small amount of, or they're doing it. But once these big oil companies come in, they suck all the oil out. They will deforest am- the Amazon rainforest, and so- they'll just em- Economic, sorry, environmentally destroy this country. And then when the people are like, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? And the local government starts objecting, that's when the local government all of a sudden becomes dictators and is treating their people poorly and things start happening. An example of some things that happen are the local leadership of these countries usually involved in a deadly accident, quote-unquote accident. And then a new president comes in where he's like, yeah, we'll work with, we're doing great. We're going to work with uh, the United States, basically a puppet. Um, If the local government is not involved in a deadly accident, uh, then humanitarian aid, well, Sanctions are imposed, and then you know uh, more humanitarian aid, and the country can't get stuff, so the country's population falls into deeper, deeper, uh, distraught situations. And then we send in the military that does the work, and these are called jackals, or you know they call them special forces, and they destabilize this government to take over finally. And it's all skewed that this guy's a dictator and he's no good for the people and and, so, and such. So this was America's way of, quote-unquote, nation-building. Basically, you heard that term before. Um, by what means, you know, at the time, the American people didn't know, but these are the tactics the American government or the 
corporatocracy uh, influenced the American government uh, to do these situations, and a lot of people got rich off of this. But it was sold to the American people as we're spreading democracy, and this is the right thing to do. We did this with Panama over the Panama Canal, Mr. Noriega. Mr. Noriega actually wanted to do the construction by the Japanese. And America couldn't have that, so Mr. Noriega was a bad man. And we actually ended up bombing Panama and invading it uh, illegally over the Panama Canal because who controls Panama Canal controls shipping and trade, which is a big thing. Another example of this uh, is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is basically owned by a royal family, and in the 70s they they have oil, but they didn't have a big infrastructure for taking out all the oil. And there was basically anything there, nothing there in Saudi Arabia. It was just a desert with some buildings. And... Mr. Perkins, this economic, well, he didn't actually, Saudi Arabia was a little bit different uh, because they have so much oil, so they have a lot of negotiating power. So basically what they negotiated is uh, Saudi Arabia would put their money into the U.S. Treasury and all the interest that it gained would then be given to these American contracting companies and we would build them an infrastructure. We would develop their country. And you have the lovely city of Dubai and everything that happened in that country from the 80s and 90s till now was done uh, by the United States because they have, maybe now they're more on their own, but basically we started all that because they had nothing. They just had the oil. And we said, we'll do this for you, but we need that petrodollar and we need that relationship for oil. And since Saudi Arabia, if you think about it this way, had nothing, maybe we're contracting our military out to them also, i.e. things going on in Yemen and such. So it's very interesting. This book by John Perkins the confessions of an economic hitman really go into detail where, you know, I can't cover every uh, detail, but it's, it's worth a read. Definitely. And what happened to Mr. Perkins is his conscience obviously uh, got to him and he got out of business of doing this, which was supposedly a very lucrative business for him. And but he just didn't like to see... He actually built relationships in these countries because he was there and dealing with them from, you know, like tribal people to like people all in the government. And he actually saw what the real people wanted and how they were being uh, exploited and all this, and he just didn't want any part of it. But fast forward uh, 20 years later, and we go into Afghanistan again. Now, under the guise of we're there to get Al-Qaeda, who performed the terrorist acts of 9-11. Meanwhile, all those guys were from Saudi Arabia, but whatever. They were trained in Afghanistan or whatever. 
So we were in Afghanistan 20 years, right? But recently, Mr. Biden said, well, we were never there to build a nation. Build a nation. <laughs> nation building. I just described what nation building was. So uh, if you think about it, Afghanistan has a lot of poppies there. So we weren't really there to build a nation, but we were there for 20 years to prevent terrorism. And now we pull out, and all of a sudden we have uh, the Taliban back in action. Uh, they have all the all our old military stuff that we left there, and weapons, and su support equipment, and just a bunch of stuff. And it's a mess, and everybody's screaming and yelling. We got people there. You're not getting people out, and even conservative media is all over this. And it makes me think that maybe. There's some corporation that really wants to stay there because, you know, and it, to me it would be the military-industrial complex or companies, these military contractors that would want to be there because it would benefit them, not because we have a few thousand people left Americans there. That too, that would be a good thing to do. Uh, but if you were in Afghanistan, you know what you signed up for and uh, you shouldn't be surprised that you're stuck in the situation that you are in now. So now let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, uh, the pharmaceutical hitmen. Uh, the FDA approved the Pfizer uh, vac COVID vaccine yesterday. And everything I just spoke about with the economic hitmen and in the 70s and all these nation building and going to country and country, look what we have, what's going on today. We have a situation where every country, every country in the world is in a pandemic where we have a, a set amount of a couple of pharmaceutical companies that produce this vaccine. And we have had three presidents of Tanzania, I believe, and a few more small countries that were objecting to this vaccine. And just so happens they, you know, died very, very quickly after they announced all this stuff. And, you know, if you look at history and what's going on today, it might not be contracting companies and engineering companies and military contractors now, but it's pharmaceuticals with the backing of banks. And, you know, if you refuse, you can't travel, you might be, you know, these countries face penalties now uh, if they don't go and want to vaccinate their population. Because these leaders of these countries, it's just like, yep, do it, get it, no matter what the science is saying or how people question it, uh, they're just going, because nobody wants to get suicided, I believe. No one wants to go against the powers that be and say, well, we're going to do it a little differently here. Even England, with Boris Johnson in the beginning of this, he was singing a different tune, like, yeah, we're not going to really lock down, we're going to do our own thing, and then a, f a month or so later, you know, he's changing his tune then he's in the hospital with covid and then he's like all on board and now he's just you know straight up you know lock everybody down you know just 
a whole different tune. And it's just very, very suspect, all this. Just look at uh, Gottlieb. He was working for the FDA, and now he's on the board of Pfizer. If that doesn't smell of conflict of interest, uh, I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know how simpler to uh, draw it out for you, because that's total conflict of interest. You were on the FDA, and now you're working for Pfizer on the board. It's like, come on. They're not even hiding it anymore. It's in plain sight. See, in the 70s, when this guy Perkins was the economic hitman, you only had a certain amount of media outlets that were able to control the news more. You know, you heard what ABC, NBC told you, reported on you, and that's it. If Noriega was a bad guy and he was doing horrible things to his people, he was a bad guy doing horrible things. You didn't have, you know, average Joe couldn't reach out to, you know, somebody in Panama and know what's really going on. They just took it for a word. But now we have the internet and all the social media and all these different sites and everything. You actually can figure out what's going on. You just have to know a little history. The the playbook is, well, they don't na- they're not nation building anymore. They're just blatantly, you know, we're controlling the whole thing here now. Somebody is because I guess nation building is not enough money uh, or oil or everybody's catching on to the oil deal with Iraq and all that stuff that happened in Afghanistan and I think the whole uh climate of the Middle East and us being there is played out and people just don't want it. So they have to find another way now. And here it is. Now this is the play. And this is globally scaled. So it's very interesting. And not not only do you have the pharmaceuticals with this pandemic, you have uh, a bunch of climate change advocates that are you know globally they're they're pushing climate change again or more now that the current administration it is in and it's like climate change climate change climate change uh cut emissions cut fossil fuels cut this cut that but only a few companies stand to benefit from all this change and it's like it's just, it's not nation building no more. It's like global building. It's like they they graduated from nations and now we're just going to change the whole world. We don't, we're not focused on nations anymore. We're just doing global and that's it. And then what? Then universal? Then they're going to go universe, planetary, planetary building. You could see it starting. All these private companies going into space and space tourism. It's starting. It's getting there. And it's just funny that people don't see the pattern of what is going on. I said in a previous episode that if this was a serious global pandemic, uh, you wouldn't think that these pharmaceutical companies would come up with a, a vaccine or a medicine and kind of just, for the good of humanity, get something out there and then worry about the money after and not just like kind of, you know, strong arm nations or let a few nations buy it and then the rest everybody else is waiting. 
it's just suspect. It's like for some reason, anytime there's some crisis, it always comes down to money and we need money to fix it. And somebody's getting this money. And if you notice, things are still not getting better, you know, because Al Gore with his movie, The Inconvenient Truth, what, 30 years ago, he said that the CO2 levels were going to skyrocket and we're going to be dead. And here we are. So it's a pattern. It's it's marketing. It's ingenious marketing by 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 the biggest corporations. Fear. When you fear, you will pay, and that's what they're betting on. So that's going to wrap it up for me today. Thanks for joining me on this episode. Uh, I hope you learned something. Uh, again, that book is "The Confessions of an Economic Hitman" by uh, John Perkins. Uh, I bought an original because there's a there's the new Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and I didn't want to read that because I don't know what was edited or what's the difference, but there was stuff added. So if you get your hands on an original copy, that's the best. Uh, a very interesting read, and if you don't know history, it's it's doomed to repeat it. You're doomed to repeat it again. So thanks for joining me. I hope to see you next week. Please leave us a review on iTunes. It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. What is it that makes us depressed or anxious? So often we hear it's about something in our biology, like, oh, it's a chemical imbalance in your brain. But as journalist Johan Hari shares in his 2019 TED Summit Archive Talk, a lot of the causes can be addressed without drugs because the causes are not biological. They have to do with the way we're living, our modern culture. And that means we can do things to fix it. Hi, this is Adam Grant of Work Life with Adam Grant. This year, we worked with our sponsor, Verizon, to tell amazing stories from their workplace. Stay tuned for a story from Nysir, whose early encounter with Verizon Innovative Learning Schools changed the course of his future. Um, For a really long time, I had two mysteries that were hanging over me. I didn't understand them, and to be honest, I was was quite afraid to look into them. The first mystery was, I'm 40 years old, and all throughout my lifetime, year after year, serious depression and anxiety have risen in the United States, in Britain, and across the Western world. And I wanted to understand why. Why is this happening to us? Why is it that with each year that passes, more and more of us are finding it harder to get through the day? And I wanted to understand this because of a more personal mystery. When I was a teenager, I remember going to my doctor and explaining that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. 
I couldn't control it. I didn't understand why it was happening. I felt quite ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realize was well-intentioned, but quite oversimplified. Not totally wrong. My doctor said, well, we know why people get like this. Some people just naturally get a chemical imbalance in their heads. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you some drugs that will get your chemical balance back to normal. So I started taking a drug called Paxil or Siroxat. It's the same thing with different names in different countries. And I felt much better. I got a real boost. But not very long afterwards, this feeling of pain started to come back. So I was given higher and higher doses until for 13 years I was taking the maximum possible dose that you're legally allowed to take. And for a lot of those 13 years, and pretty much all the time by the end, I was still in a lot of pain. And I started asking myself, well, what's going on here? Because you're doing everything you're told to do by the story that's dominating the culture. Why do you still feel like this? So to get to the bottom of these two mysteries, for a book that I've written, I ended up going on a big journey all over the world. I traveled over 40,000 miles. I wanted to sit with the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and, crucially, what solves them, and people who've come through depression and anxiety and out the other side in all sorts of ways. And I learned a huge amount from the amazing people I got to know along the way. But I think at the heart of what I learned is, so far, we have scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed in our biology. Uh, Your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems, though they don't write your destiny. And there are real brain changes that can happen when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But most of the factors that have been proven to cause depression and anxiety are not in our biology. They're factors in the way we live. And once you understand them, it opens up a very different set of solutions that should be offered to people alongside the option of chemical antidepressants. For example, if you're lonely, you're more likely to become depressed. If, when you go to work, you don't have any control over your job, you've just got to do what you're told, you're more likely to become depressed. If you very rarely get out into the natural world, you're more likely to become depressed. And one thing unites a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about, not all of them, but a lot of them, Everyone here knows you've all got natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd all be in real trouble real fast. But at the same time, every human being has natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we built is good at lots of things. Many things are better than in the past. I'm glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep, underlying psychological needs. And it's not the only thing that's going on, but I think it's the key reason why this crisis keeps rising and rising. And I found this really hard to absorb. I really wrestled with the idea of shifting from thinking of my depression as you know, just a problem in my brain to one with many causes, including many in the way we're living. And it only really began to fall into place for me when one day I went to interview a South African psychiatrist named Dr. Derek Summerfield. He's a great guy. And Dr. Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants for people in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs, so they were like, what are they? And he explained. And they said to him, Oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. 
and he was like, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy, like, I don't know, St. John's wort, Jinko biloba, something like that. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day, he stood on a landmine left over from the war with the United States, and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg, and after a while, he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently, it's super painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. And I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic to go back and work in the field where he got blown up. The guy started to cry all day. He refused to get out of bed. He developed all the symptoms of classic depression. The Cambodian doctor said, this is when we gave him an antidepressant. And Dr. Summerfield said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It was hard for him to see it in the throes of his depression, but actually it had perfectly understandable causes in his life. One of the doctors talking to the people in the community figured, you know, if we bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer, he wouldn't be in this position that was screwing him up so much, he wouldn't have to go and work in the rice fields. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? <laughs> If you've been raised to think about depression the way I was, and most of the people here were, that sounds like a bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant, she gave me a cow. But, <laughs> but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively, based on this individual unscientific anecdote, is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years based on the best scientific evidence. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak, you're not crazy, you're not, in the main, a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And it's just as important to think here about what those Cambodian doctors and the World Health Organization are not saying. They did not say to this farmer, hey, buddy, you need to pull yourself together. It's your job to figure out and fix this problem on your own. On the contrary, what they said is, we're here as a group to pull together with you so together we can figure out and fix this problem. This is what every depressed person needs, And it's what every depressed person deserves. This is why one of the leading doctors at the United Nations in their official statement for World Health Day a couple of years back in 2017 said we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about the imbalances in the way we live. Drugs give real relief to some people. They gave relief to me for a while. But precisely because this problem goes deeper than their biology, the solutions need to go much deeper too. But... When I first learned that, I remember thinking, okay, I could see all the scientific evidence, I read a huge number of studies, I interviewed a huge number of the experts who were explaining this. I kept thinking, all right, but how can we possibly do that, right? The things that are making us depressed are in most cases more complex than what was going on with this Cambodian farmer. Where do we even begin with that insight? But then in the long journey for my book, all over the world, I kept meeting people who were doing exactly that from... Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo, I kept meeting people who were understanding the deeper causes of depression and anxiety and as groups fixing them. 
So obviously I can't tell you about all the amazing people that I got to know and wrote about or, or all of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about because um, uh, they won't let me give a 10-hour TED talk. You can complain about that to them. Um, but I want to focus on two of the causes and two of the solutions that, that emerge from them, if that's all right. Here's the first. We are the loneliest society in human history. There was a recent study that asked Americans, do you feel like you're no longer close to anyone? And 39% of people said that described them no longer close to anyone. In the international measurements of loneliness, Britain and the rest of Europe are just behind the US in case anyone here is feeling smug. And <laughs> I spent a lot of time discussing this with the leading expert in the world on loneliness, an incredible man named Professor John Cassiopo, who was at Chicago. And I thought a lot about one question his work poses to us. So Professor Cassiopo asked, why do we exist? Why are we here? Why are we alive? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. But they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. This was our superpower as a species. We band together. Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes. And it is making us feel awful. But it doesn't have to be this way. One of the heroes in my book, and in fact in my life, is a doctor named Sam Everington. He's a general practitioner in a poor part of East London where I lived for many years. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they give some relief to some people. But he could see two things. Firstly, his patients were depressed and anxious a lot of the time for totally understandable reasons, like loneliness. And secondly, although the drugs were giving some relief to some people, for many people, they didn't solve the problem, the underlying problem. So one day, Sam decided to pioneer a different approach. A woman came to his centre, his medical centre, called Lisa Cunningham. I got to know Lisa later. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And when she came to Sam's centre, she was told, don't worry, we'll carry on giving you these drugs, but we're also going to prescribe something else. We're going to prescribe for you to come here to this centre twice a week to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people, not to talk about how miserable you are, but to figure out something meaningful you can all do together so you won't be lonely and you won't feel like life is pointless. The first time this group met, Lisa literally started vomiting with anxiety. It was so overwhelming for her. But people rubbed her back. The group started talking. They were like, what, what could we do? These are inner-city East London people like me. They didn't know anything about gardening. They were like, why don't we learn gardening? There was an area behind the doctor's offices that was just like scrubland. They were like, why don't we make this into a garden? So they started to take books out of the library. They started to watch YouTube clips. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant but they started to do something even more important. They started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't show up, the others would go looking for them, say, hey, you okay? Help them figure out what was troubling them that day. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. 
This approach is called social prescribing. It's spreading all over Europe. And there's a small but growing body of evidence suggesting it can produce real and meaningful falls in depression and anxiety. And one day I remember standing in the garden that Lisa and her once depressed friends had built. It's a really beautiful garden. And having this thought, it's kind of it's very much inspired by a guy called Professor Hugh Mackay in Australia. I was thinking, you know, so often when people feel down in this culture, what we say to them, I'm sure everyone here said it, I have, is we say, oh, you just, you just need to be you, be yourself. And I realized actually what we should say to people is, don't be you, don't be yourself, be us. Be we. Be part of a group. But the, the solution to these problems does not lie in drawing more and more on your resources as an isolated individual. That's partly what got us into this crisis. It lies on reconnecting with something bigger than you. And, and that really connects to one of the other causes of depression and anxiety that I wanted to talk to you about. So everyone knows junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. I don't say that with any sense of superiority. I literally came to give this talk from McDonald's. But <laughs> I saw all of you eating that healthy Ted breakfast. I was like, no way. Um, but, but, but just like junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like crap, right? That's not an exact quote from Schopenhauer, but that is the gist of what he said, right? But weirdly, hardly anyone had scientifically investigated this until a truly extraordinary person I got to know named Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois. And he's been researching this for about 30 years now. And his research suggests several really important things. Firstly, the more you believe you can buy and display your way out of sadness and into a good life the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. And secondly, as a society, we have become much more driven by these beliefs. All throughout my lifetime, under the weight of advertising and Instagram and everything like them. And as I thought about this, I realized it's like we've all been fed since birth a kind of KFC for the soul. <laughs> we've been trained to look for happiness in all the wrong places. And just like junk food doesn't meet your nutritional needs and actually makes you feel terrible, junk values don't meet your psychological needs and they take you away from a good life. But when I first spent time with Professor Castro and I was learning all this, I felt a really uh, weird mixture of emotions because on the one hand, I found this really challenging. I could see how often in my own life when I felt down, I tried to remedy it with some kind of show-offy, grand external solution. And I could see why that did not work well for me. But I also thought, isn't this kind of obvious? Isn't this almost like banal, right? If I said to everyone here, none of you are going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the shoes you bought and all the retweets you got, right? You're going to think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. I think that seems almost like a cliche, but I kept talking to Professor Kasser and saying, you know, why, why, why am I feeling this strange doubleness? And he said, well, at some level, we all know these things, but in this culture, we don't live by them. We know them so well, they become cliches, but we don't live by them. I kept asking, well, why? Why would that be? Why would we know something so profound but not live by it? And after a while, Professor Kasser said to me, because we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. I had to really think about that, because we live in a machine 
that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life. And Professor Kasser wanted to figure out if we can disrupt that machine. He's done loads of research into this. I'll tell you about one example, and I really urge everyone here to try this with their friends and their family. So with a guy called Nathan Dungan, he got a group of teenagers and adults to come together for a series of sessions over a, series, over a period of time to meet up. And part of the point of the group was to get people to think about a moment in their life they have actually found meaning and purpose. For different people, it was different things. Some people, it was playing music, writing, helping someone. I'm sure everyone here can picture something, right? And part of the point of the group was to get people to ask, okay, how could you dedicate more of your life to pursuing these moments of meaning and purpose and less to, I don't know, buying crap you don't need, putting it on social media and trying to get people to go, OMG, so jealous, right? And what they found was just having these meetings, it was like a kind of Alcoholics Anonymous for consumerism, right? Just getting people to have these meetings, articulate these values, determine to act on them and check in with each other led to a marked shift in people's values. It took them away from this hurricane of depression-generating messages, training us to seek happiness in the wrong places, and towards more meaningful and nourishing values that lift us out of depression. But with all the solutions that I saw and have written about, and many I can't talk about here, I kept thinking, you know, why did it take me so long to see these insights, right? Because when you explain them to people, I mean, some of them are more complicated, but not all. And when you explain them to people, it's not like rocket science, right? At some level, we already know these things. Why, why do we find it so hard to understand? I think there's many reasons. But I think one reason is that we have to change our understanding of what depression and anxiety actually are. There are very real biological contributions to depression and anxiety. But if we allow the biology to become the whole picture, as I did for so long, as I would argue our culture has done pretty much for most of my life, what we're implicitly saying to people is, and this isn't anyone's intention, but what we're implicitly saying to people is, your pain doesn't mean anything. It's just a malfunction. It's like a, a glitch in a computer program. It's just a, a wiring problem in your head. But I was only able to start changing my life when I realized your depression is not a malfunction. It's a signal. Your depression is a signal. It's telling you something. We feel this way for reasons, and they can be hard to see in the throes of depression. I understand that really well from personal experience. But with the right help, we can understand these problems, and we can fix these problems together. But to do that, the very first step is we have to stop insulting these signals by saying they're a sign of weakness or madness or purely biological, except for a tiny number of people. We need to start listening to these signals because they're telling us something we really need to hear. It's only when we truly listen to these signals and we honor these signals and respect these signals that we're going to begin to see the liberating, nourishing, deeper solutions, the cows that are waiting all around us. Thank you. Imagine you're a teacher trying to incorporate a new piece of technology in the classroom, but you're not exactly a computer whiz. Who do you naturally ask for help? Easy, a student. You would be in class 
and a teacher would call you out of your class just to get you to help them figure out their tablet. That's Nysir Vaughn. In middle school, he was chosen to be part of one of Verizon's digital inclusion initiatives, the Verizon Innovative Learning Program. The teacher said to us the point of the program was to like have us get like background knowledge on the tablets and use that knowledge to be able to help other students and teachers. Nysir's school in Pennsylvania was the home of the Tigers, so this group of student helpers became known as Tiger Tech. Just one time, we had these screens that, for the tablets, like, they would turn pink out of nowhere, and we called them, like, pink screens. And one day, we opened the back of it, and then we connected a wire, we disconnected and connected it back, and it fixed the screen. And ever since then, I was like, oh yeah, this is something I could really know how to do. The Verizon Innovative Learning Program wasn't only giving students access to new tools. They were also building their confidence. It felt empowering. I learned that, like, I really enjoy technology. Like, it's a really a part of who I am. And I'm really good at teaching other people things about technology. Daily, teachers would ask the tire techs for help. Research reveals that helping and teaching others can help us build confidence in our own skills. The program introduced Nysir and his peers to STEM studies, inspiring them to consider careers in science, technology, engineering, and math. Eighth grade, I was doing my classes for the next year, and when I saw the engineering courses, I knew that like that's the path I wanted to take. After Tiger Tech, technology was just always there. It was always like a part of learning. Nysir is now finishing his freshman year at Howard University. His major? Engineering. It's been a struggle for now, but I think that's only because we're all like stuck inside. When I finally get there, I can't wait to make the most of every single activity I can. Before, he loved playing video games and using apps. Now he wants to make video games and build his own apps. One day, like, making a video game or making an app that like everyone uses and just be able to say like looking at someone using it be like hey i made that the verizon program it really shaped my life i feel as though it opened doors to being able to know what i want to do with my life to being able to go to howard in general because they just gave me the motivation to want to continue in that STEM field. This is just one of the ways that Verizon is committed to closing the digital divide. To learn more about Verizon's responsible business initiatives and impact, head to citizenverizon.com. TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com.
Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. (sighs) Battling your bed every night? Why? Because you like tossing and turning on that old lumpy mattress you've had since graduation? No, get a Purple mattress. Only Purple has the grid. It's amazingly supportive and cushions your curves no matter how you sleep. Plus, Purple's 100-night trial guarantees a great night's sleep every night or your money back. Stop battling your bed. Get Purple. For a limited time, save up to $350 on select mattresses and bedding at purple.com slash sleep in. Terms apply. Welcome to another episode of the Starter Girls Podcast with your host, Jennifer Loading and Brianna Drellis. And together we are the Starter Girls. Where extraordinary decisions produce extraordinary results. These are our friends, these are your friends, and they are living the extraordinary. Today's episode is brought to you by Walt Mills Photographer of Glad Models Agency. If you are here in the Dallas or surrounding area and looking for some photography work, check out Walt Mills. You can learn more about him and his work at photosbywalt.com. Additionally, we want to give a shout out to the Studio Dallas. The Studio Dallas is the best kept secret in the Dallas podcasting world. If you are looking for a studio with top-notch technology, video and audio recording capabilities, as well as a team to make things go smoothly, Studio Dallas is the place to be. You can learn more about them through us at startergirls at gmail.com. And head on over to startergirls.com to pick up your free gift. We're going to help you up-level those decision-making skills. And we have an amazing event happening this fall on September 25th. And when you head over there and tell us where to send that free gift, you're going to learn more about that September 25th event. So head over to startergirls.com today. All right, Evan, are you ready to get started? I am ready. I think we are ready. All right. Today is a great day to be brave. You might as well start now. You have the power to change your circumstances any day you decide. Let today be that day. Rise up. Be amazing. Be you. Do you. All right, my friends. <laughs> Got to get the hands moving. We're going to start to use Damn. our hands. We're getting going Damn. here. All right. So we have a guest in studio today. And I always get excited when the guest is in the studio because it makes the show so much better. Woo-hoo. So Evan James McClellan is a local musician and actor, native Dallas, right? Yes, that's we right. love it. Absolutely. He started playing the drums at four, growing into several rock bands through the years and having music heard on the radio, performing professionally and opening for national acts. He eventually moved into production, putting out three albums. As an actor, he did his first reality tv show at 22 since then obtaining many roles which we're going to talk about entertainment and being in the spotlight is his passion and what he is born to do he currently has a studio in mckinney with over 800 tracks get that brianna he's created and produced yes ready for the world to hear hey welcome to the starter girls show welcome super excited to have you here absolutely all right, so we are, I, we're gonna. I know Brianna because she's in the mu- she's okay. music, you know, industry. Really? I'm business, oh, wow. so we're gonna have a lot of fun here. Yeah, but yes. um, I definitely we were talking before the show started, and we're like, hold on, Evan, just save it for the show because our people are gonna want to hear this. So walk us through this. Tell us how this came about for you. Like, did you were you introduced into this or so, yeah? Fill uh, us in. My daddyo was a, a pretty cool rock star uh, back in the day. He grew up in L.A. Uh, we actually grew up in Texas, then moved to L.A. when he was 18 with nothing but a backpack and decided, I want to do this. Um, he had already known Alice Cooper by that time, and they became great friends, and then they eventually started jamming together. Then my dad got in a really cool band called Axecraft, 
Um, and they got pretty big opening up for The Who with The Doors, uh, Phil Collins, Pete Townsend, going to crazy parties all the time and making those connections. Um, they did a demo album for A&M Records, is what I was told. And in 2001, I guess when the internet started booming, mm-hmm. I did a search for Axe Craft and thousands of pages had come up to where it had been bootlegged and been selling all over the world. Mm. And uh, he still owns the copyrights to the songs, but there's so many people to track down that's probably pretty impossible to uh, do. But the legacy from that is it's in my blood, and that's what made me uh, want to get into the business. That is so awesome. Very cool stuff. I'm over here. I'm I'm thinking Alice Cooper right now. I'm just like singing in my head. <laughs> oh yes. yes. We're talking now, about music. Yeah, were yeah. you Were you born in LA or did did you Were you born here in Texas? I was born in Dallas. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I've I've been in Dallas. Um, I've I've moved around um, over the years, but I've always come back to Texas because it's the best. It's, it's the greatest place for sure. Yeah, this is fun because I met Evan Brianna and for our audience. I met him at a networking event and he was working for another company, but mm-hmm. kind of he's this is his thing, like what he's wanting to do. And so I'm just finding out even all this because we really didn't even get into that yeah. heavy of a conversation. He, he, he just told me like what he was doing. And I went and looked you up, by the way. I went home and looked you up because I'm like, I gotta find out who I'm talking to here, yes. you know, so I can find out some history. And so um, it's fun, you know, to have these kind of raw, authentic conversations where they're not like all planned out ahead of time. We know everything. Absolutely. Hence why we said save it for the show because <laughs> yes. we want to hear it. So I think this is awesome. So I want to talk about like your music. You got like 800 tracks. This is crazy. Yeah, so um, I have a studio. I've been teaching myself, you know, how to produce um, since being a drummer. I've been playing the drums since I was four years old and always feeling the beats and, you know, feeling the grooves. And I just taught myself and now I've uh, progressed and I have about 800 instrumental tracks in all genres. Um, Everybody that usually comes over and hears my stuff has a, they say it's got a really deep cinematic feel. Mm -hmm. A lot of my stuff, um, but I've done hip hop before with some artists. you know, I've got a lot of pop stuff, but it's usually I start with something in my head and then I kind of create and expand from there like a puzzle piece. And yeah. Just like a puzzle, putting all the pieces together. And uh, it's just something that I love. And hopefully very soon I'll be able to get that out more since we're in a, so much of a digital age now to uh, course. get everything out there and you know, yeah. try, to, try to put my vibes on the world so people can feel good. That's a lot. That's a lot of tracks. I mean, it's a lot of music. Is, so that's like, it yeah, it's quite a bit. So, do you find yourself collaborating with um, a lot of singers or vocalists um, uh, always, on your stuff? I'm or? always looking um, for vocals. Um, I usually try to find someone who has positive things to say instead of the whole radio game right now, because it can sure. be a little bit saturated with um, just overprocessed things. So. Um, but I'm always looking. Um, I've worked with a couple singers that are pretty cool, just locally. Um, and uh, that Netflix thing I was telling you about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, I got into that. It's a uh, great trailer. I did the music for it. I ended up meeting this guy, and he loved my stuff. And he said, this is the scene. This is what's going to happen in the scene. And this is what I need it to sound like. And I just sat down for a night, and I created uh, everything that he asked me to do, and he loved it. And uh, the director put it into the trailer, 
and it's being presented um, to a bunch of different places right now. So that is so cool. cool. Congratulations well, on that. Appreciate awesome. Yeah. So tell us your work you've got out there because I know you've got, I know you, I've seen, I've looked up your stuff on Netflix. I know you got some stuff out there. So tell our audience so they can go check it out. What are some of these things you got out there right now? Um, so like already out. as far as the acting goes, I'm on season two of Queen of the South. That's on Netflix. Um, I have a couple roles on there, speaking lines with the main actress. I'm also in seven episodes of a show called Murder Made Me Famous on the Reels Network. So I usually get typecast sometimes to play the cop or the bad guy. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I, yeah. I played uh, John Gotti's uh, mobster in one, and I had to uh, get pretty pretty violent with uh, <laughs> one of the guys. <laughs> you know, I got a lot of fake blood squirted in my eye, but um, definitely something cool um, I've always loved to do. Um, I got picked to, I got picked from an extra to actually play a senator um, in LBJ with Woody Harrelson okay. and Bill Pullman. Um, and I got to hang out with Rob Reiner all day, and he kept calling me Pitbull for some reason. Pitbull? <laughs> uh, no, I got some cool shots with him. Um, and then I am in <clears throat> a scene um, in a James Franco film that has not yet been released that I filmed in 2016. But that's called Kill the Czar, C-Z-A-R. Mm. Um, so waiting on that to come out. As far as the reality TV that I've done, um, don't laugh. I mean, you probably will. No, we won't laugh. Maybe I will. You might. <laughs> so my first one uh, was a show called A Lemon Date. A Lemon Date. Date. Okay. It was like four guys or four girls competing for the guy or girl. Yeah. Um, I got eliminated, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then after that, how can we not laugh at that? I know that's funny. Yeah. I mean, it's great. I had hair in that episode, so it's definitely something. To... We need to go find the episode yeah, so we right. can see you with hair. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's check that episode out, huh? Um, and then I was in another uh, show called Cheaters. Well, we know Cheaters. Oh, I think I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty hardcore. Um, it is scripted. Yeah. Uh, by the way, so, people, it? I, so sometimes I tell people that I'm like, "What? That was my favorite show." You I know that's, shattered that's, my dream. Yeah, because that show is so like yes. crazy. Yeah. Was that was that uh, was that host local? Yeah, Joey Greco. Yes, he was. No. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. I used to actually watch that like a lot, and I'd yeah. be like, "These people are like, this is like yeah. just crazy stuff. Like, who has time to do this?" Yes. <laughs> so my uh, friend. My friend Rick and Brandy were married at the time, but Brandy played my girlfriend, and my fiance at the time played my mistress, and her <gasps> husband. Oh my goodness! No. husband in real life played her brother. This so we get so this good. crazy knockdown, dragout fight at this club, and everybody thinks it's real. They got their phones out. Oh my God, cheaters! And it was just all improv. <gasps> and we had the greatest show ever, and our episode was so good, it got, um, it was on Sweeps Week, it got- We gotta go find this, yes. we need to find this episode, that's uh, amazing. Actually, so it's funny, it actually, um, the other day on Friday, I was up early and scrolling, and uh, MTV2 played You see episode. it? Yeah. You see it? You're like, <laughs> there I am on the TV! I finally made it to MTV, oh my god! <laughs> that's so uh, awesome! So, Dang! So awesome. But since then, just making connections and meeting yeah. the right people, and you know, just, I love, you know, entertainment and making people feel good and just having fun and being silly. So yeah, yeah. and you'll stay here because now you can, right? It's like back in the day, you had to go to LA or New York mm -hmm. or whatnot if you wanted to be an actor, and you're living in Dallas yep. and you can do this from wherever. Absolutely, like you uh, can do entertainment from wherever. It's, absolutely, it's incredible. I yeah. just uh, signed with Spark Talent, um, their boutique agency. For yeah. acting and they're doing some really great stuff they got a really yeah yeah they're really cool um they got a great roster 
um, and they're pushing me out for a lot of cool things right now, so I'm excited to see what happens. You're in the room with a lot, not me so much, but she was reality, you know, American Idol, oh, and wow. Chris mm-hmm. is kind of in the entertainment stuff mm-hmm. too. So I have so many tracks. Yeah, I'm a singer. Yeah. yeah. What's your genre? Well, I would say like I always tell people, I'm soulful, okay. rock. With a little bit of country, yeah. like a little bit of Texas. I like with a Texas, like a Texas country twist. Soul. No, because I'm not really a country singer whatsoever. Okay. But like everything I do is like very soulful. Like so, I always. And, but I've got like this kind of edge on it. Okay. You know, yeah. Okay. But um, I'm that. actually gonna be releasing a single at the end of this year. So you guys um, got that. And that that vibe on that song is definitely like it feels. I, I'm still trying to figure out what's because it's all it's all piano mm-hmm. and lots of soul, but it's it's really really hard to kind of like drill down what the genre is gonna be. Like, it's really interesting. I would love to hear it, and I would love to get you in the studio. And yeah, that'd be cool. I'd love that. Look at fun. that. We made a connection Boom. on the show Hello. today. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, I have a question for you, Evan. Just because you know I'm not privy to this mm-hmm. this kind of you know into that, so I don't know all this. So. If somebody were like, say, somebody was wanting to go into like this this industry, like, what is the what advice would you give them? Um, practice, practice, practice for sure. Um, know what you want to do, what kind of environment that you want to be in. It is such a cutthroat industry, um, but it is, I think, a little bit more accessible since it is such more of a digital age now. Um, make connections. You never know who you're going to meet. Right. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. that's that's pretty much it. Especially in entertainment, it's uh, it's all about connections. Keep them strong. Um, don't let rejections get you down because it just makes it that much sweeter. Yeah, it works out. I think that the two things you said there that I think are universal though in a lot of industries is not letting you know getting hung up on rejection and the connections because I I think no matter what I, I don't ever understand like. I think networking is such a huge part. I think as humans, we need a network period. Sure. But I think definitely if you're in a, in business mm-hmm. for yourself, you need to network Absolutely. because you never, you never know, you know, it may not be that immediate person that you meet that is your important person, mm-hmm. but that important person may lead you to somebody yeah. that's really important. Yeah. You know, I think the doors are always there, but mm-hmm. you have to choose, you know, hundred percent walk through them or not. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. And, yeah. and you don't, you can't, I mean, if you're stuck, I, I when I'm coaching, you know, like business mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and I'm talking to them, I'm like, when they're hung up and they're like, they don't know what to do. I'm like, you need to go meet somebody. Like one person doesn't have all the answers that yeah. you need. So you've got to keep moving until you find the answer that you need. So you just keep navigating, Absolutely. keep opening the doors. Yes. The yeah. Doors. There's always I love that. And rejection. Yeah. You yes. got to let that go. That Absolutely. just, ha- that has to go. That's just part of life. Yeah, you got to get over that because yeah, it makes you stronger. Yeah, you just stop, you won't move. It's amazing how many people though do stop. Oh yeah, you 100%. know, yeah, like 100%. I always say, it's all about the long game, right? Mm-hmm. And been singing for my entire life, and I always said to myself, I will always keep music in my life. I'll always be singing. I will have some sort of career in music, but I'll do it on my terms. I will do it in my way. And I didn't take the traditional path, but I also didn't know how it was going to look like, right. you know, so, so fast forward to where I'm at now and I'm like looking at going, whoa, well, I did it my way. That's for sure. But, you know, I didn't, the, the, the how has been revealed over time, but it's simply because I didn't give up. I just kept pressing, you know, one foot in front of the other and, and the connections mm-hmm. and the networking and the, the process too, like accepting that 
what I thought as a 21 year old that my life in music was going to look like at 40, um, totally different, looks totally different than what I envisioned, but that doesn't necessarily mean bad different. It just means different, you know? So like being okay with that. Same way. Yeah. So interesting. You never know what's going to happen next. It could just, this could be it. You know, you never know. You just got to keep positive feelings in your head and, and just know that you can do it. 100%. Yes, yes, yes. I'm always like that. I'm like, man, every day you get up and you're just like, what kind of magic am I going to make yeah. happen today? Like, right? Every day, that's how I get up. Mm-hmm. Somebody busts that bubble, I'm like, you need to back off. You need to go the other <laughs> yeah, direction. Right. You might rain it on my parade. Yeah. Go the other way. Yeah. So I love it. I'm like, I had a question. I just got sidetracked when you were talking about all that. So per, you produced some albums. Are there some out there? Have you worked um, on some? You- so I used to be with a rock band called Spill. Okay. Um, this was almost 20 years ago. Okay. You ain't that old. I mean, were you a baby? You were like a really baby. I was ten years old. You had hair. Okay. Uh, But it was pop rock. It was their first time. But we opened up for Bowling for Soup. Yeah, I remember Bowling for um, Soup. Very cool. The Calling. Yeah, I remember um, that. Dexter Freebish. I mean, we did a bunch of cool stuff. Were you playing like Deep Ellum too? Like, you know, two one. And we hooked up with a girl named Kelsey Tony, and she had just. written a track about the uh, 9-11 attacks mm. and then we put our rock spin on mm. it and then one or two of us started playing it we need to uh, find some of this stuff yeah, we need to locate some I of know. this uh, it was pretty cool yeah. uh, but spill is still out there um the album is not the band um mm. and then i had my own uh just instrumental uh, my production name is MC Squared because my name is Evan McCullough. Yeah. MC is MC Squared. MC Squared. It's good. Um, good. So I had that. Uh, I'm working on another um, just self-titled instrumental album. Everybody usually hears my stuff and is just like, I don't even need to hear vocals on it. It's yeah. just like the vibe that it gives me where you can hear vocals on it. So I think that's what makes my music a little I bit I want to hear some unique. of it. I wish we had some. I want to hear hear some of your stuff. Um, SoundCloud.com slash okay. producer MC2. Okay. Um, I have some stuff on there. I'm always updating new stuff. Um, and then I, I think I sent you a couple links. You did. So, you did. I'll make sure we get yeah, some yeah. stuff too. Yeah. When, we, when we get this promoted, yeah. we'll get some of it. But I want to hear it before that. Yes, <laughs> I, didn't, sure. I didn't get a chance to go through all of it. I got everything on my phone. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig through there because I want to hear some of this stuff and see what's going some, on. De- definitely got some cool and stuff. I, we got to find the cheaters episode too. We definitely got to find oh, that. Oh, yeah. That sounds epic. We got to find we did do that. I think we should ask him some fun questions around some of this because he's like in entertainment. I think we should come up with some fun questions we really need to ask him here. So okay. um I'm trying to think here. What's the favorite like the most like coolest person that you feel like you've met? You've you met a lot of different people. So who do you feel like has been like the coolest person that you've met? Oh, in music uh, or entertainment, you know, I mean actor. God. Look at this. He's got so many canes. I've got so many. I guess. I know, I we did this to so somebody many. else. Who yeah. was it? We asked somebody else this a while. And they're like, ah, there's this. It was Scott Ferguson. Remember we asked him? He's like, well, I met this person, this person. We're like, okay, cool. Introduce us, please. I mean, there's <laughs> a lot. I, Woody Harrelson always stands out to me because okay. in LBJ, he was LBJ, and he had full makeup on, so he had a fake nose, prosthetic ears, and he was feeling good, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was, we were just talking, I was standing next to him and he was just, was the just nicest, most polite person. Um, and I, I would just like, oh my God, sit there. And You're Rob, like, it's Rob, Rob, Rob yes. Reiner's right here. Oh my God, what am I doing? And then, um, standing next to Bill Pullman and then riding back in the van, 
going back to where our cars were, I, Bill was sitting behind me, just Fun. talking, and you know, just that whole day was just a great experience. Uh, but as far as the coolest person, I mean, I yeah. just, I mean, Alice Cooper definitely. I got to sit down and chat Goes with him multiple times. Yeah. Full summer. <laughs> That's yes. so cool. That's what keeps yes. going through my mind every time you think, say Alice Cooper. I keep thinking of that. He song. just came out with a brand of uh, his own Did salsas. He? And, oh, uh, I guess he's trying to stay busy during. Yeah. The yeah, hmm. he's yeah. Very, very cool. Very cool guy. Yeah. It's so um, awesome. Yeah. I love it. Well, and I think that I, I'm thinking right. What Woody Harrelson? He's been in so many, but there was that. Remember the zombie movie? Zombie Land. Yeah, Zombie yeah. Land that he was in. There's yeah. been so many. I mean, what else? The Hunger Games, and he's been in so mm. many. I like him. I do like he's him as an actor. actor. I do too. Actor. He's funny. Yeah. Very funny guy. Great actor. A lot of good stuff. Do you have one? I, I do. I have one. She's thinking. I see the, so, I see the thinking going on over so there. So <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to phrase the question. But ultimately, what I want to get at is if you had your ideal role, because we were talking about the typecasting thing. And, and for actors, I'm because I consult and coach as well. And I don't typically work with actors. But sometimes I will work with a musician who's also an actor. Okay. Mm. And we'll talk about the typecasting thing because the, a lot of times they'll try and go away from it. Like, oh, people, they just want to cast me for this and this. And I'm like, well, then you need to go for those roles yeah. because why are you making it hard on the casting producer? Because ultimately, if the casting producer is confused, they can't cast you, right? Mm -hmm. So do you lean into that like bad guy slash senator type thing? I or personally enjoy action and stunts mm. and i could imagine that would be what they would want to typecast you as it, yes right? it's but now it's they're typecasting me as the bad guy i've never really played the bad guy i've always played like the cop or the dea mm. or you know the mobster guy and, and john Gotti. that was the bad guy but i don't know i'm uh anything that's just action stunts where it's it gets really serious i love stuff like that okay um, drama, so that's drama. your ideal role action stunts and maybe a bad guy every once in a while yeah, could you see him being like the soft guy you know yeah. like the the soft yeah the unassuming like yeah. you look kind of bad mm -hmm. yeah but you're really the mysterious really yeah. soft big heart broken. kind of like the rapunzel movie tangled <laughs> there's like a big fat not fat oh. sorry a big tall like beefy <laughs> i didn't mean fat it's okay a big tall beefy guy yeah and he looks really really scary but he's like the sweetest like character yeah. in the whole movie i haven't seen that movie mm. you haven't seen that i movie? have three girls really like, yeah yeah well, she's I'll, seen I'll tango probably like five times <laughs> yeah yeah right it's really good actually yeah, yeah. this yeah. is good um but i i think that i mean comedic stuff too um i don't know i mean jason statham played uh Spot. Was I was just thinking of that name you talked about. I was just thinking about him, how he always gets those same kind of roles, he was too. In, what was it called? I Spy or Spy? Uh, he's I don't had remember, a lot but of he played too. like the hardcore, like action guy, but mm -hmm. he was funny at the mm. same time. But he was serious funny, you know, so that would be. Yeah. Mm. I don't know why it's so weird you brought him up because I was just thinking about that when you were talking about action because a lot of his movies, they're, they're, it's kind of he's that same type yeah. character in every, almost every role he plays. It's mm. like if you were to see him as like, the nerdy guy or something be like oh mm -hmm. that's not a character yeah. no that doesn't work yeah, you know like absolutely. it's hard like especially if you watch somebody an actor in like movies a lot and mm -hmm. then they have sort of a different kind of role jason statham oh, jason yeah. statham yeah you'll see he's him got like a, like a dark like comedic side oh, yeah. that he oh. throws in with the action yeah 
stuff. I yeah, think they're like I this think, dry humor thing, yeah, yes, dry that's, humor comedies. I, that's so. probably right up my alley for sure. That's awesome. Okay, so what's your favorite type of music? Aside from yours. Everything but country, no offense. <laughs> oh, hey, that's cool. I don't... Um, I like country. Thank I like you. more like chill, like vibey, positive. Ah, yeah. Stuff that kind of like a little bit sexy, a little bit soulful. Uh, 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 gives you that, gives you that just oh, gives you that vibe. So. Very cool. Okay. I like a little bit of everything too. It depends on the mood. Like you know, some days I'm gonna go country, and some days I'm gonna be like, put some Mozart on. I need like chill. Yep. And then sometimes I'm be like, we need to crank this up. Yep. Like I need some. Maybe we'll put on some Metallica today. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I, do, I do listen to Metallica sometimes. I have, you know, my Spotify list. Speaking of music, so I have all these Spotify lists that I've created, and there's like no rhyme or reason to any of them, like nothing, because it can go from like, like I like Nine Inch Nails and industrial music, okay. right? And then I'll be over here. I'm like, okay, so now we got Roseanne Cash going on over here, okay. you know, Heartbreak, whatever, whatever that song is. I heard that today. That's what I'm saying now. So I have no rhyme or reason. I relate to Johnny Cash too. You are? Mm -hmm. We just found out more info on the, on the and, podcast today. And Harry Truman. And uh, my grandfather, my mom's dad, was one of the first Channel 8 newscasters. Um, and he covered the Kennedy assassination. So when I played LBJ and was in the Kennedy assassination scene, it was amazing. Because it all went full circle. But interesting. This is pretty cool. It is. How are all these people connect? This is so how these There's are like a, could die. This I, is so interesting. My mom and dad could like yeah. sit here for hours. This is so crazy. Yeah. It's almost like we have a book project ahead yeah. of us. Yeah. You could yeah, you need to like talk you need to like it's tell that story. Tell that story. Time, so. tell very that story. For sure. Johnny Cash and who else? Harry, Harry Truman. Truman. Um the guy who did the Coca Cola letters is like one of my great uncles. Um, the branding for Coca Cola? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, very creative. They're all like very creative. Uh, yes. But it would make sense, though, <clears throat> because, yeah, it's all kind of a. Yeah. My mom was. Um, she's an actress, too. So when she was younger, she traveled around the country um, doing theater. Um, so I've grown up. You've grown up. Do you have siblings? Do you have siblings, or is it just you? I have two younger sisters. Are they in this industry, too, or no? They're not. Isn't that funny how that happens? Yes, it is. We had, a, we had one of our girls, remember we were talking to LaToya Cooper, her show, and I asked her, like, if she kind of came out of the womb, you know, singing or whatever. And she's like, everybody in her family is like, no, serious, not, doesn't have anything to do. And then there's her, and she's a singer, and she's got a business now where she's bringing that in and helping these, I guess, musicians kind of scale their businesses, That's so right. to speak. Yeah. So. It's interesting how you'll, you, know, you followed and the other two didn't, but then mm -hmm. you'll have a situation where nobody's in that industry and then mm -hmm. somebody comes out and mm -hmm. is doing that. So, so. my um, sister's husband, Tony, before they were married, um, he was one of the main bouncers on Cheaters and in my episode. And then they <laughs> met, they started working together. Now they're married with kids. It's the Cheaters reunion. Everything's always been full circle in my life. That's hilarious. So you're just used to it. It's kind of yeah. like being in an entrepreneur family where everybody's yeah. entrepreneurs, which they kind of you kind of are in in your industry pretty too. Much, it's yes. pretty much because I was the only one in my um my family that sang. Yeah. She came out. Of the womb I'm the youngest. Singing. I came out of the womb singing. Yeah, youngest of four. No one else sings. Parents don't sing. And I have three girls, and they are musical. But don't sing. But like they won't pursue music. Okay. Like they they'll pursue other avenues. No, no instruments or. I mean, we have guitar in the house, but yeah, no. I mean, yeah. they're one of them wants to be an architect. The other one wants to, you know, 
work wow. for Trader Joe's, and then the other one wants to be That's an artist. That's cute. Work for Trader Joe's. <laughs> She's like, we gotta get stuff at Trader Joe's. We're gonna get mama discounted Trader Joe's. We we yeah. both want to work at Trader I Joe's. Say, right. That's actually say, like so great. What I want to be when I grow up. That's so great. That's, That's good. So funny. That's cool though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You set the tone. I mean, you're. Yeah. So anyway, I think it's it is interesting though yeah. because I wonder if down the road if they decide to have kids one day, I wonder one, where it's one, gonna pick yeah, back yeah, up or. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I, my son is the singer in our house. He is like from the day, like okay. So back in, he's he was born in two thousand four. So if you remember when Katy Perry came out, I don't remember what year that was when she her first song, "I Kissed a Girl." Mm -hmm. He was in preschool and he was like three years old. It's a funny story. He's gonna get mad when he hears this. But he was in preschool singing that song in preschool. <laughs> I kissed a girl, you know, and he was the only boy in the class, like the only boy in this preschool class. And all these little girls liked him. And, like, I would have to, like, the preschool teacher would tell me all the time, you know, like, this little girl's chasing Sean around. He's always singing, I kissed a girl. And he's still, to this day, he's 17. He is always singing. What does he, what does he like to sing? What's his uh, style? It's some nasty rap stuff right now. I, I don't like his music. I don't like it. But he will get on, and every once in a while, he'll have, the other day, he had Peter Cetera on in there, and he was, you know, singing one of them songs. He'll, he'll, he'll be like 80s music, and I'm like, man, he knows all the words, too. Like, he can sing all of Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Man. He knows all the words of the whole song. That's funny. But as a whole, I don't really like his music. When Ham, what was it? Uh, <laughs> Hamlet, or whatever, what, what was it? That Hamilton, Hamilton came out. Okay. Remember the musical mm -hmm. Hamilton? You don't know how many times we had to hear those songs. I was like, if I have to hear one of the songs one more time he, every Some day. Some of those raps are pretty every day. tough. Well, now you got In the Heights. He needs to go check that yeah, out. Yeah, he hasn't found that one amazing. yet. Amazing. Yeah, I haven't found that one yet, but he does love to sing. So I can totally yes. understand that whole. Well, give him my link. I, I need to. Stuff up there. I need to. Because he's like, he's like singing. I'm like, man, can you turn that stuff down? And he comes in the door. Here he comes again. He got the ticker up. He's like, yeah. It's loud. Let's just sing. So very good. Well, this has been fun. You have any more Absolutely. fun questions you want to ask him? Hmm. It's been fun. Let's you got to connect definitely sure. outside. Yeah, it's okay. it's got awesome. some commonalities there. Yeah. Will you be traveling uh, anywhere soon? Mm -hmm. No. You just gonna stay put? Mm -hmm. Okay. He's got it going on. Yeah. He's gonna be making his mm -hmm. more music. Got eight hundred tracks. He's got to get out. He's a busy you, dude. You're more than welcome to come on the studio. Yeah, that'd be fun. I'd love that. Absolutely. That'd be cool. Very awesome. cool. And Looking if anybody needs a place to record, you need to reach out. So where do they find you, Evan? Where do we tell them to go to get you? Um, so you can email me directly at mcdcreations at yahoo.com. And my music is available um, to listen to uh, soundcloud.com slash producer mc2. MC2. We yeah. got that. We're going to make sure when this goes out, we'll put whatever you told. We'll make Absolutely. sure we have it all in there so they know where to find you. Awesome. And in the meantime, and then we may, you know, when we get ready to put out, we might find a little music to okay. stick in there and send it out. I would Ooh. Love that. I would love right? That, that would be amazing. So yes. awesome. Thanks for coming out today. Absolutely. This is fun. Like, we're gonna, we got like, okay, guys, you got all this stuff now. You need to go find it. Like, find the Cheaters episode, find yes. the Netflix episode, yeah. find all the episodes. I'm going to be like home tonight, like digging in all this <laughs> stuff, trying to find it. I'll be like, hey, I know that guy. We know that guy. So awesome. remember us when you get really rich and famous, you'd be like, hey, we came into that Starter Girls mm -hmm. podcast, talk to those girls. Uh, this is, I'll be right? back for sure. This is amazing. Awesome. Thank you have guys. to keep us posted. Thank yeah, thanks so for much. coming in. Absolutely. Thanks yeah. so much. Absolutely. All right. We do want to say to our listeners, of course, if you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to give us a rating both on iTunes and Facebook. We cannot do this without you. And hit that subscribe button on YouTube. And head over to StarterGirls.com and pick up your free gift. And don't forget, save the date for September 25th. We'll have our second in-person Starter Girls event, and we'd love to see you there. Absolutely. Okay, so final thoughts for the day. 
Genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. I think we can all uh, agree with that. That's by Thomas Edison. Blood, sweat, yeah. and tears. Right. I like it. right? Yes. And of course, in order to have success, you must start. And every start begins with a decision. You guys take care, be safe, and be kind to one another. We'll see you next time. This is the sound of the kind of thrill ride summer was made for. Here's the sound of another one. At the Lexus Golden Opportunity Sales Event, you'll find great deals in our entire line of performance vehicles. Strap in and hold on tight. Lease the 2021 RX350 for $439 a month for 36 months with $39.99 to its signing. Experience amazing at your Atlanta area Lexus dealer. Call 1-800-USA-LEXUS for important lease offer and pricing details. Not all customers will qualify. Offer valid in the Lexus Southern area only in September 7, 2021. Verizon 5G Home. Powered by 5G Ultra Wideband, is delivering incredible speeds for just $50 a month with a mobile plan of $30 per month or more and auto pay. It's a new kind of home internet with no annual contracts or messy wires. Setup is so simple, you can do it yourself in minutes. Plus, we can even help cover your cost to switch. Welcome 5G Home. 5G Ultra Wideband available only in parts of select cities. Device requires mounting with brackets. Switch off. Additional terms apply. for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.